This is Coffee and Camino and I'm Luke Mills. Good afternoon pilgrims and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Camino. My name is Luke Mills and today, well I have to say I'm appearing before County Court Judge um, Mark Dean but I have the best def defence because we're not actually in court. We're actually in uh, Dimitri's Cafe in Swan Street, Richmond and it's a very popular place for you and right off the bat Mark, you've told us already that you actually have a very strong connection here to this uh, cafe, Dimitri's Cafe in Richmond. Well, I moved to Richmond uh, 10 years ago. I met Dimitri shortly after that. Just wandered in here and it's been renovated since those days. And um, I guess my Caminos began here because a friend of mine was telling me about her journey on the Francis. Yeah. One Christmas, Christmas 2015, I think it was. Yeah. And I thought it sounded great. I, I knew about the the way but you know I'd never really thought seriously about doing it yeah. until I spoke to her and she had gone through some sort of crisis at that time and and you were quite staggered by her resilience or the, her recovery or something like that yeah, yeah I think so and I asked her you know I mean how have you dealt with this it was a big challenge for her at the time and one of the things that she said to me was, oh, you know, I went on the Camino, I did a Camino. And we got talking about it and um, yeah, she provided me some tips and she actually introduced me to Jean-Francois, a guy who owns a, a house in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in yeah. France, yeah. where she had stayed and I stayed with him for a couple of days yeah. to get myself ready for the walk. and. Um, he was always at the end of the phone if I needed any <laughs> advice and stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was great. So, yeah, well, you you really got the, um, the a sort of a gift from the locals in a lot of ways. A lot of time people just arrive and then leave. And had he done, had he he'd done the Camino in previous yeah. years? Yeah, he, he was, um, he's a sculptor, I think, as I recall. Yeah. And he'd moved from, uh, I'm not sure, not Paris, but a larger city in France. Mm -hmm. And yes, he he was, you know, he knew a lot about the Camino and yeah. he'd done it himself. Yeah. So was he at all, did he go to St. Jean for, because it was where the Frances I started? think so. Yeah, I think okay. so, as I recall, yeah. yeah I think okay. that's what drew him there. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's good. So that was, back, that was for you back in 2016. So you did a little bit of research and did you go by yourself at yes. that stage? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> and yeah, and you set off on the first of April, yeah, which was April uh, Fool's Day. Yeah, well, which I have to say, if when I go back in, whenever that's going to be back to Spain, I want to set off on the first of April because it sounds like a really, really uh, mild. Uh, time things are beginning to open up. It's springtime. Um, they're getting ready for the summer avalanche. And how was it for you? Um, well, the um, the mountain way over to Roncesvalles was closed because oh, yeah. there was still quite a lot of snow. Yeah. Um, and so we had to go via uh, Valcalos. Yeah. And um, 
uh, there was quite a bit of snow around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still, you know, very cold at times mm-hmm. and very wet. Um, it, I left Saint-Jean on the 1st of April and got to Santiago on the 13th of May. And oh, I had good. a couple of stops of two days in Burgos. I think I had two nights, Pamplona and mm-hmm. Lyon. Yeah. Was the, were they get were they gearing up towards the uh, were there sort of like f- any festivals or festers at any particular time along there because I know it is in springtime and coming up mm. after a long winter sometimes things occur. I, like. Yeah, I think so. I can't really you know remember anything specific. Pamplona was just beginning to mm-hmm. come alive. Uh, the bullfighting wasn't on at no, it started. No, July I think. Um, yeah. Look, it was still pretty quiet. There was no trouble getting accommodation, mm-hmm. you know, for the whole journey. Yeah. So yeah. So the crowds were were down then, or were lesser at that at that. When point I up. walked across the Mazetta from Burgos to Leon, I there were days where I didn't see anybody oh, right. at all, yeah. and um, you know that was beautiful. It was like the plains of heaven, and yeah. it was incredibly green. You know, the cornfields yeah. were bright green and you could see ahead for 20k or something yeah. and there's no no one else that's right we i spoke to a few people when we were out there and they said oh the Masetta, you don't want to do it it's dull it's it's flat there's no one there i loved it i, I yeah me too i thought it was terrific and, and we the towns were the, are beautiful there yeah too. they are the towns are beautiful they um it it's a great uh welcome sort of stretch of flatness after coming through a lot of the hills and the climbs that you do you know either side of yeah. um either side of uh, of, of Pamplona's particularly but also uh from Burgos as well and yeah some people say oh no they say oh you don't need to go there but I I, I found a terrific place the yeah. villages were wonderful yeah it, it was that was the time when I really sort of started to you know explore the why I was doing the Camino and and um, the loneliness was good for me at that time mm-hmm. and the beauty of the Mazetta mm-hmm. you know was also you know profound really mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. and you know being in that kind of remote part of Spain mm-hmm. at that time of the year mm-hmm. yeah it was, mm-hmm. it was well a you said you spoke to part of it yeah, that you said you spoke to this woman at this place, at Dimitri's cafe, who had overcome a small crisis, yeah, and she had recovered whilst she was on the Camino. But was there any particular crisis for you, or were you doing some soul searching at that particular time, or were you more curious? Well, that- a bit of both. I'd been a judge for about <clears throat> six years, I think, mm-hmm. and um, I was starting to feel the burden of the job. Mm-hmm. The previous chief judge, Michael Rosines told me in the early days when I was saying to him how easy I was finding it, he said to me, <laughs> Don't yeah, worry. sure, you wait till you've been here for about five or six years. And and sure enough, after about five or six years, I did start to find the, the pressure of the work, the cumulative pressure of it, um, you know, it started to take its toll. That's unusual because as you slip into a job over four or five years, you would expect jobs to become easier not harder well i think being a judge it's the cumulative effect of um you know other people's trauma right and uh you know that's 
something that's now becoming better understood, I think. Yeah. Judicial officers being exposed to that. Mm-hmm. And the a greater degree of outside scrutiny now mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, judges are subjected mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And just the general sort of pressure that's on government, I think, in all Western democracies, really, and judges are part of government. And we all, I think, feel a greater degree of pressure than perhaps in the past. Yeah, it, it, it seems to become highly politically charged in some environments and, um, yeah, obviously does add to the to the weight of expectations and community sentiments and things like that. So, and and the, the judicial system is caught up in that, no, there's no doubt. And I, I would like to go back and have a chat about that. Um, but one of the things I, first of all, is that I'd like to... Um, you know, inform everyone that this is just one of the things that Mark Dean does because the Camino has also inspired him to become a fiction and non-fiction writer, and he has uh, done some, uh, written some more, some small um, accounts that have appeared in some literary magazines in, in um, Australia. And but I want to say to you first, was the Camino part of that process of? encouraging you to write or when did this come um, about uh, that the fact that you'd like to get involved in sort of writing memoirs or or creative pieces um, I'd al- I've always been interested in writing and I've always been writing pieces off and on but the judicial work again kind of um, you know you write thousands of words a week of legal reasoning and so you know, the time to write other stuff is not really there. Mm-hmm. So I actually also had a sabbatical when I first um, went on the Camino. So it was an, it was a time, some months really, to think about writing again. And I did start to write. I'd, and um, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but walking along the river near Pamplona, mm-hmm. Um, where Hemingway used to go fishing <laughs> and, uh, you know, that whole kind of part of Spain, George Orwell mm-hmm. and Burgos as well, the most incredibly beautiful town. And, mm-hmm. It is beautiful. You know, the mm-hmm. sort of origins of the Spanish Civil War there, really. Franco, you know, declared war from a balcony opposite the hotel I was staying in in Burgos. And, you know, the whole sort of power of 20th century Spain, I suppose. Yeah. Picasso as well, mm. um, you know, and those influences, yeah, they're mainstream if you like, but I did find it quite creative and stimulating. I, I did too, when we, the, I became fascinated by um, the, the Spanish politics which was occurring uh, to us in, on the TV each night when we, yes. when we came yeah. in. We were there for the um, 40th anniversary of the handing over of, democ- of democracy you did, we, uh, from, 19, uh, 70, uh, from 1975 and, uh, the 50, uh, to, uh, to now. So it's, no, 78, sorry, 78 it was. So that's when Franco handed over the power or he, to the um, monarchy at the moment, I think it was uh, King Philippe, and he, it was at in, 2000, in 1978 that he handed it back to um, the people and they had their first election. So we were there, I think it was about December 8, um, 2018. And so, 
that day, we were in Madrid on that day, and it was a day of very mixed emotions around yeah, the country. Sure. Um, <clears throat> there were protests um, at the tomb of Franco, which are, it's not in the main Madrid cathedral. No. It's in one, I think, just outside of town, but it's still you know, declared a state memorial. Um, There's a big debate about a lot at the oh, moment, actually. Yes, and it reached... What should be done with that term. And it, that's right. And so there was a approach, and also in some of those more uh, Republican type of places that was in Catalonia, but also in Basque, they were, there was a few riots in the streets yeah. and things like that. So it wasn't greeted with uniform acceptance because uh, a lot of people really still resent that. Um, and as you obviously, when you go through the Caminos de Frances, there are memorials along the way to uh, slayings and yeah. massacres that occurred in certain yeah. places. So it um, it really is a uh, both for, on both sides. I think there is there might, you might be on the Primitivo where some some seminarians were were. Um, assassinated by Republican forces. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I can't remember precisely, but that, that is right. Yeah, I might um, yeah. I might look into that because there, there so there are memorials and places all yeah. along the way. It's still very fresh in the memory for a lot of Spaniards, yeah. I think. Um, yes, it, it was a very, you know, the first one was a very, you know, <clears throat> um, it was a cleansing experience and, but it wasn't really until I started to enter Galicia that I really began to understand why it was that I was there, you know. Mm. And um, my mother was Irish origins and I was sitting in a little village, a ruin, a ruins actually, of a Celtic village, like a, um, you know, I don't know, it was like 300 BC or something perhaps, the village. <laughs> near Castro Mayor and um, just as you enter Galicia and I for some very unexpected reason I started to really sort of feel the presence of my deceased mother and um, I for the balance of the Camino was very sort of conscious of my own Catholic origins really mm. um, and even though I hadn't it, it wasn't for me a religious journey in any um, formal sense it was nevertheless it, it did have a component of that to it and I found mm. a level of peace I suppose that I didn't really expect um, mm. by reconnection with my mother who died in 2005. Okay. Um, so, was she a, a devout Catholic? In no, the she wasn't devout, but <clears throat> she and her sisters were, you know, brought up by the nuns. Yeah, very typical of the and, age, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, and um, you know, she had a difficult childhood, and you know, my father was in prison during the Second World War, and so there were a lot, there were a lot of very strong family themes started to emerge for me as I neared Santiago for the mm. first time. Mm. And and it really was a very profound 
hmm. week or two towards yeah. the end. Yeah. And, you know, unusual that it should occur in a distant land by yeah. yourself, no visual reminders or anything no. like that. Yeah. I did, I was also carrying, <clears throat> I had a walking stick that I'd brought from Australia, which a friend's son had given me when I turned 40, so over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'd never known what to do with it. It was from his farm down near Apollo Bay. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take it with me. And sadly, he had died. He was a judge as mm-hmm. well, but we were not on the court together. He's quite a bit older than me, Bill Morgan Paler, a wonderful, wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took this stick with me and, um, you know, it was a walking stick. So there were a lot of you know, very personal hmm. connections hmm. that started to all mm-hmm. make some sense. And, hmm. I, and I think that's not uncommon for hmm. for people on the hmm. way, hmm. that they they do, in, individuals do find what they're looking for. And I know that hmm. even if you don't know what you're looking for, I know, again, it sounds <laughs> a bit of a cliche, but, but it is a bit like that. Yeah. And... Um, you know, these strong personal experiences do occur. And, and partly I think it's because of the time that you have. People say to me, oh, you know, I'll do part of the Camino or mm-hmm. do two weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but I think if you have the chance to be able to do an entire Camino Francis, yeah. 800 kilometres, takes about six weeks, that time and the peace of walking yeah. and being connected to the earth by walking, traveling on foot, mm-hmm. is an incredibly powerful thing for a human being mm. to be able to do. And, and of course, if you yeah. have any real interest in history, people have walked along these paths, you know, for yeah. 2,000 years. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, that, again, yeah. is also a very... Yeah. you know powerful resonance you can feel it yeah yeah you can feel it oh you can feel the generations of the camino in from a thousand years uh ago through to very modern times you know yeah. it, it has had waves and waves of um building and infrastructure of going in and of favor going out of favor becoming very popular and powerful then becoming corrupt and then it it, it has uh certainly with different groups of spanish people and other you know other groups around the world who go it's 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 a whole you know um catalog of 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 work and and a lot of it's collected at the um at the museum, which is at the very end, which is terrific. Um, in Santiago. In Santiago. They try yeah. to capture that thousand years of, uh, yeah. of pilgrimage. I really loved it. It was free when I went there, but they, we had to leave early because they were closing for lunch. So that was a bit of a shame. Um, and another thing that I, I really wanted to talk to you about today, Mark, was that um, you have been particularly either inspired by or um, have found um, art as an inspiration, particularly through Spanish artists. Yeah, through, yeah, through two major works that, unless yeah. there's another one that I don't know about, but you've written extensively um, on the uh, on two major works. The first one was Walking to Guernica with Picasso's Guernica, 
Well, so that like, was the first yeah. um, story that Mianjin published. I started writing pieces um, about the Camino on the Francis, but never really, you know, completed anything. And I decided that I would like to write more when I was walking. Mm. And um, inspired in a way by Donald Trump. I mean, what an, what an awful source of inspiration he is. But, but he, um, you know, fake news and the age of alternative facts and truth and so on mm -hmm. was really emerging when I left for the Camino North. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very conscious of Picasso's painting Guernica mm -hmm. and the circumstances that he painted that in. Yes, yes. It's... And um, I just was... want to tell us a little bit about the actual painting um, for those people who don't know the work and the reasons. Well, it's, why... his, it's his one of Picasso's most significant works, and it was mm. painted after the um, bombing of Guernica, which occurred in April 1936, when um, the civil war in Spain was just getting underway, mm. the Nazis bombed and, and Italian and Spanish air forces bombed Guernica, mm. which was at that time the capital of the Basque region in Spain. And it was a you know, total war and carpet bombing and, and all of that, and thousands of people were killed. And after after that happened, Franco um, blamed the local Basque people for destroying their own town and murdering their own people. Wow. And this, because the Spanish Civil War was underway, there were a lot of journalists in Bilbao and they were able to cover the bombing of Guernica and it attracted a lot of, a lot of um, attention yes in france and in england and picasso had been commissioned to paint a painting for a fair a cultural fair that was taking place in paris at the time in 1936 but he didn't really know what to paint mm -hmm. until he heard and read about the bombing mm -hmm. of guernica mm -hmm. and those events were the inspiration for mm -hmm. the painting mm -hmm. so when i began the first the second camino uh, which i began in San Sebastian. I went to Madrid first and it was the um, 80th anniversary of the bombing of Guernica. So there was a big retrospective on at the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid mm -hmm. and um, you know the painting became for me a strong emblem of mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that journey, that mm -hmm. walk from mm -hmm. San Sebastian to mm. Oviedo mm. and I wrote that story about it which uh, Jonathan Green who's been a fabulous supporter, the editor of Mianjin and he's on our end quite a bit, Jonathan, he's great Yes, yes he, he published it um, in Mianjin that story walking to Guernica with Guernica and I, I went to the town of Guernica and um, um, explored that whole sort of area mm -hmm. and it was a very, um, yeah, that, that journey was a very um, much more challenging than the, than the Francis. Mm -hmm. It's a much harder walk. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, there were times when I 
really wondered what I was doing. You know? <laughs> mm. Yes, you may mention that it's positively wild in some places. Um, it has, uh, you said there are raging waters and steep mountains and um, bears still I don't know if they're still there I know the I know the emblem for the for Madrid is the bear shaking yeah. shaking the tree but are they still in Cantabria yeah, are yeah they? the Cantabrian brown bear they're yeah. remote you don't sort of see them it's not like yeah. Yogi Bear or anything there aren't any around yeah not that you can see but they are there yeah, yeah. it sounds pretty wild through that northern region that was the, more the primitivo that, yeah. that really remote mm -hmm. but but the but the north is very remote as yeah. well in, yeah. in parts in Cantabria and Asturias right but the walk along the coast um, some of the coastal walks were you know remarkable really and mm. you are on the edge of the European continent yeah yeah. looking out, you know, across the Bay of Biscay or the yeah. Atlantic and you had big steep cliffs there and it's like southwestern Victoria. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you walk literally, yeah. you know, right along the edge of yeah. Europe. Yeah. Literally, and you're looking yeah. over the cliff into the ocean. Was it this just going back to the to the um, painting of Picasso's painting that that um, whereby he was the the local forces were blamed for ruining their own town was that and you could might say that was a a conspiracy theory was that the connection between the fake news and and the the, the um, alternative truths things that you're talking about yes. with uh with with trump that, whereby something seemed to be entirely fabricated or everything is a conspiracy um one way or the other and truth is really relative in a lot of ways yeah, yes i think so and also you know, then and now, I've felt very uneasy about, you know, the way our political discourse was developing. And like many Australians, I suppose, I had seen the United States as, mm -hmm. you know, a force for good in many respects. Yeah. Art, literature, culture, mm. you know, tolerance and so on. Obviously, <clears throat> there was a lot of intolerance in America and a lot of bad things have occurred as I was growing up as well, like Vietnam and so on. But but there were sources of good in America yeah. and I was horrified by the election of Trump mm. and shocked actually mm. that uh, that America could, could do that. Mm. And I was worried and I still am mm. worried mm. Um, about about the future of, um, you know, representative government as we understand it mm -hmm. and the, and the mm -hmm. constitutional mm -hmm. arrangements that, um, that we all live by. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're under enormous strain mm -hmm. and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the election here mm -hmm. and, you know, if, if it's very close mm -hmm. or, you know, if there's a minority Labor government or something like that, just how our constitutional structures cope mm. with it. Mm. Because mm. I think America is under enormous political pressure at the moment. Mm. And um, that was the sort of pressure that led to the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we well, certainly we don't want to uh, go down that way. No. Um, no, not at all. But so I, there is another piece um, Mark, that has also provided a great deal of inspiration. And I'm not sure, again, if this occurred before your um, Camino, 
um, or just to just to let um, uh, everyone know that the, the Norte was actually done in in sort of two stages. Mark was uh, telling me beforehand that he had in 2017 he had completed the Norte from um, from San Sebastian to to Oviedo, yeah, and then completed it the Oviedo to Santiago, which is the makes, it, makes up the Primitivo. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can do that, um, and people often do, rather yeah. than doing the entire Nort, which goes further east along yeah. the coast, yeah. you turn south into Oviedo, yeah, and then um, you can do the Primitivo, yeah, which yeah. is from Primitivo is of course means the first yeah. uh, original the ancient route yeah. yeah ancient route yeah um between the two cathedrals the yeah. cathedral in Oviedo and the cathedral oh, in Santiago okay. Yeah, yeah okay right yeah. that's why it was and it was um called, is that part of like is that the inglaise as well do no, they call it, it that's a sub, that's, that's a separate section okay right here yeah, that's yeah. that's up that comes in from the coast okay uh into into not into Oviedo either into an area north of, I think it's from the coast to Santiago. Okay, yep. The Primitivo is Oviedo across the Cantabrian mountains yeah. to Santiago, and yep. you, you join the Francis um, a couple of stages before Santiago. Can't remember the name. I think of the you town. said Melide. Was it Melide? Melide, that's Melide. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melide. Yes, yeah. Yes. I enjoyed Melide. It's lovely. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, lovely town. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Beautiful place. And the second piece of work, um, Mark, that this second piece of work, um, Mark beca uh, became a very big inspiration for him was a a piece of work by uh, Francesco Goya, and it's uh, titled the Third of May. 1808. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that that painting, and also why it became a source of inspiration for you too? Well, um, after uh, the first piece was published in Mianjin, they published one or two other shorter pieces about other unrelated subjects, and then I was doing another Camino. The the Primitivo, <coughs> and I had previously been interested in Goya, and I'd been I'd been caught up in a complex sentencing case mm -hmm. myself. Uh, I was the original judge, and the case went to the High Court, and it was about a sentencing principle known as the instinctive synthesis, and I was interested in the relationship between mercy and sentencing and the role of an individual judge and this is not indirectly related or it is directly related to what I was writing about previously that you know the role of an independent judiciary mm. in keeping a democracy healthy um, and so I was interested in in mercy and its role in sentencing and the painting the 3rd of May 1808 depicts a painted by Goya depicts a Spanish dissident who uh, is about to be executed by um, a firing squad um, made up of Napoleonic soldiers after the invasion of Spain. It was painted by Goya in 1814, I think, mm. and um, it's kind of regarded as the first, one of the first modernist 
paintings in the sense that it mm. it depicts real human emotion without the firm imagery it, like it, it, the precise imagery it had more of a it's probably pre-impressionism but it, yes. it but it, it tries to create a mood rather than the actual human figures in some ways although it's it's quite naturalistic yeah it's quite a natural it's approach. a very beautiful painting mm. and it stands it's hung next to a painting called the second of may 1808 which depicts the actual uprising against the napoleonic forces um, and they 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 hang together in a room in the Prado, and it, it it's a it's a painting that Myron Sukumaran was very interested ah, in. Yes. Shortly before his execution, mm-hmm. and um, Julian McMahon, who was one of his barristers, told me that Myron was very interested in the mm-hmm. painting, mm-hmm. and used it as part of the inspiration for the work that he did yes before he was executed himself by a firing squad yes of course and um Mm. you know it's a strongly resonant painting and it has a lot of human rights themes Mm -hmm. uh running through it and religious iconography as well yes um the way the man who was about to be executed is yes. you know is depicting yeah, crucifixion crucifixion style and, yeah and um it is and he's heroic and so on and so it, it it's it was again a, a very strong piece for me to use as you know part of the framework to write about mercy yes. and and again thinking about those issues as I was walking. Yeah, and so did you write that piece? Did you uh, you, did, did you you had that piece as a source of inspiration, and then you came back and wrote that? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that piece in Greece. Oh, okay. Um, after the um, Norge, I went to Hydra, where I go and write mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. Um, and I've been going to Hydra quite a lot over mm-hmm. the years, uh, where George Johnston lived, the Australian writer and Charmian Clift and um, Tim Winton's work there and a lot of other Australian writers. Yeah, so I wrote that piece there in Hydra and another piece which Mianjin published called The Coca Stoker, which is about growing up in Sorrento. I wrote that Ah, there as well. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote the, the one about the instinctive synthesis in Hydra. Okay. Well, there is, um, one last thing I, uh, that I, I, I wanted to bring up with you, Mark, because um, you, you made mention of a particular pilgrim, and like I like to say on, uh, on the Camino, every pilgrim brings joy to us, some when they come and some when they go. <laughs> and you made mention yes, of a particular right. pilgrim, Dave. Oh, yes. Now, was you... He, he was an American pilgrim. Yes. Did that somehow hit a raw nerve with you at the time? Yeah, it did. And um, again, it was closely connected to all of my my fears, I suppose. And Dave was the personification of, of those fears. He was expressing views that I found abhorrent. And um, he seemed like such a reasonable sort of person. Yeah, yeah. You know, initially at least. 
And it was also theatrical in a way because, as you would know, these journeys are like, you know, an odyssey or an opera or something. They have these kind of <laughs> operatic kind of qualities yes, to them. Yes, they do. And, um, yeah. and the people you meet and so on. And um, Dave was appeared to be a normal enough, a normal guy. Yeah, of course. And then, of course, he became, you know, this dark kind of figure. A, a figure that you would expect to emerge out of a shadow in a Goya painting. <laughs> and, right. and and he was just like that. Right. And we were sitting around talking about, you know, the world, as one does on the Camino. And um, he started expressing views that were frightening, I thought. Mm. And um, they were the views of Donald Trump's America. Yeah. Dave was... Um, I could see Dave at one of Trump's rallies, you know. Mm. And when you look at those rallies mm. and look at the rallies that were held in Germany and Italy, mm. you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, there's not a lot of difference. Mm. You know, it's frightening. Mm. And, you know, my... Um, it just seemed to be at odds too with the people that you were sharing the time with. Yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was strange. But again, it was... It, it was... It had a dramatic quality to it, which mm, uh, mm, was, um, mm, mm. I thought, you know, very interesting yeah. how he just emerged, really. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you do certainly get lots of different sorts of people on the Camino, and I suppose that's the, you know, one of the wonderful qualities. You, you know, you meet p people every evening, every day, and unless it's really, really quiet. And, um, and yeah, it's some, it, it is a genuinely worldly experience uh, whereby you've got a lot and lot of different nations represented. Yeah. And they come, and um, that, that is really the beauty of it. And everybody is defined by, by their uh, nationality as some, in some ways. And, uh, um, you know, you certainly remember them by that, you know. Uh, and the, oh, they, you know, Boris the Russian or... Yes, you know, Charlie, the Germans. Yeah, yeah, the Germans, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's, we certainly remember that. Yeah. Um, look, I did want to ask you, Mark, about a song of choice that we could play ourselves out to in the break. And is there some particular tune or track that brings back, I was going to say good, bad, or, uh, or, or whatever other memories that you might have of the Camino? Well, you did ask me um, to give it some thought uh, before today. And um, I, I, I must say, my musical choices on the Camino have been very um, um, <clears throat> retro, I suppose. Oh, and um, rather than trying to educate myself about music, I've kind of resorted to, you know, my old greatest hits kind of... I used to listen to a lot of Fleetwood Mac. Why which, not? You know, uh, Santana, um, The Cranberries, uh, and the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd and so nothing wrong with any of those bands the two, <laughs> the two songs that really I I were thinking strongly about yeah. were the live version of Comfortably Numb live in Berlin where Roger Waters performs The Wall and Van Morrison and the band sing Comfortably Numb okay and that's great. And I remember listening to that, walking on the north, 
But in the end, I settled on a Fleetwood Mac song, yeah. and it's uh, it's it's Christine McVie, who I think is probably oh, she's wonderful, a better singer than Stevie Nicks, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And the song is as it's called "As Long as You Follow," and I, for some reason, I was listening to it. I remember, I think, walking into Pamplona, and. Um, I've listened to it on other occasions on the Camino as well. Terrific. Okay, well, to play us out to the break, um, uh, let's hear from Christy McVie singing with Fleetwood Mac, one of their great songwriters and singers, and we'll listen to As Long As You Follow. Okay.
and welcome to today's siesta. I just wanted to make mention of something that came up in my conversation with Mark Dean, and that is about the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939 still casts a long dark cloud across contemporary Spain. Democracy is only 40 years old, and the relationship between the church, the monarchy, republicans, loyalists, separatists, it's more complicated than anything that we experience here in Australia. Throw into that the European Union, 17 regional parliaments, seven distinct languages, and a 15 kilometre boat ride to North Africa, and you truly have a pluralistic society. The fact that people can walk safely through this vast country for hundreds of kilometres hides the fact that in the recent past there have been some terrible atrocities on both sides of the conflict. On the Camino Frances, pilgrims are likely to find two memorials to fallen Republicans on the Alto Perdon, better known for its cast iron sculptures, and just before Burgos there is a Monumento a los Caidos or a monument to the fallen of some 300 Republicans now in nearby shallow graves. On the Camino Norte in Oviedo, pilgrims are likely to find churches recognising a group of nine seminarians who have just been beatified by the Vatican as martyrs from Spain's civil war persecution. Around 8,000 clergy and religious order members and tens of thousands of lay Catholics were killed during the 1930s conflict after an anti-clerical popular front government sanctioned a campaign to desecrate and destroy churches, convents and monasteries. The Spanish Civil War was such a divisive conflict that still resonates today. The long Franco years still have legacies today demonstrated by the Guarda Civil which were used by Franco during the Civil War and are now charged with being the guardians of the pilgrims on the Camino. Many posters along the way are reminders that the Garda Civil are keepers and protectors of the Camino, which assist pilgrims in their safe passage. Let us remember to walk softly through these, this ancient land of Spain and be thankful when we walk through this beautiful country that the Spanish people are still warm and hospitable to pilgrims in spite of a recent brutal and bloody history. Shelley for Shell's Tips. Take it away. Thanks Luke. Today I thought I might talk about uh, one of the important things when you're on the Camino and that's just exposure to the elements and maybe one of the most um, dangerous elements that we can be exposed to is the sun. Now in my other life, I'm actually a dermal therapist and so I get to talk to people about their skin and how to protect it from the sun a lot. So I'm going to try not to make this a science lesson today, but just break it down into some, you know, three really sort of simple areas that you need to think about when you're out on the, on the trail and being exposed to the sun a lot. 
The first one is about um, the sort of protection that you need from the sun. So one of the things to think about is when you're walking on the Camino, even if it's not that hot, you're actually exposed to the sun for really long periods of time. And that's quite unusual for most of us who now live indoor lifestyles. So one of the things that you may never have done before is to actually think about the types of things you'd need to wear and to use to look after your skin in that type of environment. The best way to protect your skin from any sort of sun exposure is actually covering up. And I think in Australia, sometimes we forget that because we've grown up with sunscreens and a lot of talk around sunscreen. But actually the only way that you can truly protect your skin from UV damage and from sunburn and sun damage is actually covering up. So the basically things, the three really, really biggest things to think about that is a broad brimmed hat. And this is a hat that has to cover more than just a peaked cap. So you really want a cap that's going to cover your ears, your whole face in shade, and also the back of your neck. Lightweight scarf is one of those things that I think is good to throw into your pack as well. So sometimes depending on the angle of the sun and the intensity of the sun, you may not be able to protect your neck and your shoulders and your chest from the sun and that's where a really lightweight scarf you know something that's made out of linen or cotton something that's not too hot that during those times you can just loop around your neck and your shoulders and the other really big one of course is um, sunglasses and you just need to be mindful that sunglasses need to have a UV rating on them so that you're aware that your eyes are actually properly protected. The other thing to think about is the type of clothes that you wear and when um, when you're out for long periods of time, you're actually better to wear long sleeved and long trousers. And people again forget that when they're out in the heat, but there are lots of really good high tech walking clothes now that are actually really light and really cool, but they also are UV occlusive. And some of these walking clothes now and outdoor clothes even have UV ratings on them. When you're choosing the sort of long sleeves that you're going to wear or long pants that you're going to wear, you have to think also, is it really protecting you from sun? And one of the ways, if it's not UV rated, one of the ways to check this is to actually hold the fabric up to the sun. And the amount of sun that you can see through your fabric, or even for that matter, through your hat or your cap or your scarf, is actually a true indication of how much sun is going to filter through. So it's just important to be mindful of that when you are choosing long sleeves and long pants. The other thing to perhaps think about when you're out um, for long periods of time is of course you still need to wear a sunscreen and the important things with your sunscreen is that it has to be something called broad spectrum. Now most modern sunscreens in Australia now are broad spectrum but you do need to check the label and basically broad spectrum means that it protects you from all of the spectrum of damaging UV rays. And the other thing, when you're outside for long periods of time, it must be an SPF of 50 plus. So that's about the amount of time that you're protected in the sun. 30 plus would not be enough when you're out in the sun walking the Camino for long periods of time. With your sunscreen, 
you're actually best to put your sunscreen on early in the morning. So rather than waiting until you think you need it, sunscreen actually takes 20 minutes to fully activate and adhere to your skin. And so if you're out on the trail and you think, oh, I need to put my sunscreen on now, chances are you've already had a good 20 minutes exposure. And then another 20 minutes on top of that before your sunscreen becomes fully activated. That's 40 minutes of, of um, sun damage that you're probably not even aware of. This is one of the things that happens when people tell you, oh, I just got wind burnt. It's often nothing to do with anything other than a delayed period of time that they didn't put their sunscreen on. My top tips for sunscreen is put it on first thing in the morning. Ideally, you know, when you're first out of the shower or even before you get dressed in the morning and you want to apply to all the areas that you think at any point in time might get some sun. So if you're setting out on the trail and it's cold, you might not think that, you know, your shoulders and your arms are going to need sunscreen, but by the middle of the day, you'd be quite surprised that you may actually be down to your t-shirt or your really lightweight shirt. So you're best to actually put your sunscreen on before you set off. Sunscreen is used up by time exposed to sun. So people are a little confused about this. So you could put your sunscreen on at say six or seven in the morning cover up and head out on the trail, that sunscreen will still actually be active for you until you start exposing that sunscreen to UV. The sunscreen is actually used up with its interaction to the energy of the sun. And that's something a lot of people don't realize. Obviously you need to top up your sunscreen when it does become exposed to the sun. So if you're out on the trail and then you're in your short sleeve t-shirt, then you really need to be topping up your sunscreen every hour or even two at the most. One of the things to remember about with sunscreen is that, you know, it's affected by perspiration, water and clothes rubbing it off. So just be mindful of that as well. And another one of the really important things that we talk about when you're walking the Camino is of course trial everything before you go out and that includes your sunscreen so you don't want to try a new sunscreen on the road and then discover that it runs into your eyes or that you've, you haven't some sort of allergic reaction to it so always take one from home that you've tried that's tried and true and the other thing I guess with sunscreen um, with sun protection is if you're walking the Camino in the summertime you really want to avoid peak UV exposure. So people will tell you this about the heat as well, but think about that even if you're gonna be out walking long distances without any shade or coverage, even if you're wearing your hats and your sunscreens, you're still getting a lot of sun. So if you're gonna be walking in the middle of the summer in Spain, then you really wanna do those top tips that people talk about often like leaving early so that you're actually at your destination before the sun gets at its absolute height and the other thing is things like take rest stops along the way when you do take your rest stops you really want to make sure that you're sitting in complete shade not just underneath a tree and the other thing is maybe work your rest stops in so that if you are going to have a long day you might actually take an hour or two off in the middle of the day or you might even decide to you know on a really hot day call it call it the day fairly early so the idea is to not actually get sunburned and to have been able to look after your skin with all of these tips but I will just touch briefly on, you know, what happens if something goes wrong. 
and you do end up with a dose of sunburn and there are some funny ideas about sunburn out there so very simply you just want to think about sunburn it is a burn so it's exactly the same as the sort of burn you might get from the iron or an oven and you want to treat your sunburn with the same level of respect so the most important thing is you don't want to add any more heat to a sunburn so you want to avoid heat so you wouldn't do anything like you know have a hot shower or a hot bath and you want to sort of avoid being hot generally so again those sorts of things like make sure you're sitting in the shade try and walk in the in the coolest environments possible to actually tend to sunburn you want to get as much heat out of it as possible so in simple terms you can do things like cool compresses so using a cold face washer or a cloth and applying it to the area the other great thing to have perhaps in your first aid kit is some aloe vera soothing gel and as we spoke about last time, there's pharmacies everywhere in Spain. So if you did get caught out, then popping into a pharmacy and getting some aloe vera soothing gel would actually be a great thing. And the most important thing is you must not expose your skin to sun again under any circumstances. So you, if you're going to continue to walk the following days, you would really have to completely cover up. So you'd have to wear occlusive clothing or a hat. You cannot get any further sun on a sunburnt area for an absolute minimum of three days. It might be, if you get caught out and have this uh, circumstance, it might even be a good excuse to have a rest day or two along the way. So that, in a nutshell, is how to look after your skin on the Camino and um, avoid any of those nasty things like sunburn and sun exposure. Welcome back. I am here in Dimitri's Feast uh, at, uh, at Dimitri's Feast in Swan Street, Richmond, and I am talking to fellow pilgrim and county court judge Mark Dean. And we're back to talk about the Camino. And Mark, it, it's show and tell time. So I always ask people to bring some things in, and I can see that you have brought in your, your felt hat over there it's a, a hat that you have worn on the Camino and would you like to tell us a little bit about that um yeah I'm happy to do that um <laughs> I think I might have been wearing a Geelong Football Club uh, cap Luke for a while on the Camino and I did say Mark when you go overseas you are representing your yes, nation I'm not so, your footy club <laughs> so and I had with a Geelong I, I had a Matthew Scarlet um, badge on my backpack as well or it might have been Tommy Lonigan I can't remember <laughs> anyway um, this was met with some disapproval well naturally. by the Australians that I met okay to the and I decided that I probably should get myself a proper hat so I bought this hat in a beautiful um, hat shop yes in the beautiful Spanish city of Leon yeah and um, it's it's a Czechoslovakian hat. It's a it's for for the people who are listening. It's a beautiful 
um, chestnut brown fedora felt hat. Um, that looks, look, you must have been one of the most best dressed gentlemen out there on the Camino, I would say. Look, it, it was, it did attract a bit of attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is a lovely hat, it's, and I don't wear it enough here, actually. I should wear it more. Um, so, look, I didn't collect that many things, and when you yeah. asked me to bring yeah. some things along, I, the hat is significant, and I wore it, you know, every day after that when yeah. I got it. And when I got to Santiago, I bought a, a scarf, and I okay. brought that along today. Yes, I can see that. And um, I wear that on the, I've worn that on all the other Caminos, and if you smell it, you can smell all that beautiful Camino sweat. <laughs> It, oh, they, it smells like an Alba game. Yeah, they, those scarves are terrific. Yeah. Um, you do use, I had a, I used a buff, an elastic buff, but those, a lot of uh, people do use those, both men and women use those yeah. types of scarves. You can put them around your head, around your yeah. neck and around your shoulders and that's, you get any number of, uh, any number of uses around about those things. So yeah, well, you were a veritable fashion statement well, out there. I, yeah, and I, I have my shells, of course. I've, and I get a hat for each Camino, so I've got one that I bought in San Sebastian, which is at a house down at the coast, and um, another one which is a bit more like an old Bowles hat, which I bought in <laughs> Madrid last year, which came, you know, a lot of people didn't like that terribly much. Well, I'm sure you'll have time to grow into it if yeah. that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. At, at, some, at some point in time, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't acquire many things. I mean, I... No. I had a shell for each one, you know, and um, books, I think, but you, know, you don't want to be carrying a lot of yeah. a lot of things. I always take something with me mm -hmm. from Australia mm -hmm. and I leave it, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the cathedral at uh, mm -hmm. Santiago or I left a walking stick in the cathedral in Santiago, the one I originally, one I, one I took originally. Yeah. And then I also left another walking stick in the cathedral in Oviedo. Um, my Breeleys are, you yeah. know, treasured books, and I've made a lot of notes and notebooks I've got um, that I've kept along the way, and bits of paper and, you know, um, serviettes and tablecloths and things that I've made notes on mm -hmm. for writing. I've kept all of that. <laughs> but you travel and, do, and a no, yeah. Well, you actually do. You, you would take a notebook for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to, to scroll down something. Yeah. Instagram is a fantastic um, tool. Mm -hmm. On the Camino, um, you can you can take pictures as you go mm -hmm. and post them, and people mm -hmm. know where you are. Mm -hmm. And it also gives you a kind of nice record yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in chronological order. Yeah. yeah of where you've been and what you've done yeah. and um, mm. I've found Insta yeah. to be really useful. Well that sort of leads me into the next thing that I was going to ask you about because you know a lot of the people who may be listening will be thinking they, they haven't been out before and you're um, you know a veteran now of, of three Caminos over very you know over a long period of time in pretty tough conditions what would you say the best tip either practical or personal or what, what would you say to a person you know uh, if you hadn't been out again for, if you hadn't been before what would you say to that person well I, I think you know everybody um, has their own personal 
needs and requirements and in a way it's a bit you don't want to be telling people too much about it because it's it is something you discover yourself and, and that's part of the joy of it all and um, everybody's Camino is different your Camino is different to mine and and that's the way it should be and, and it should be honored however <laughs> I think it's very important to have a good pair of shoes obviously but I also think um, socks are great too and if I if I had a tip I think it would be don't wash your 85% um, merino socks. <laughs> Dry them out yep. after and change them at lunchtime. Always change your socks at lunchtime and um, let your feet dry out. And you know, dry those two sets of socks out overnight, but don't wash them. Okay, they're not necessary. No, no. I don't think so. Yep. I, I, I think you want to keep the you know the um quality the, of the, the, wool. the wool yeah yeah. Okay, yeah they're for sure yeah absolutely yeah like, you know yeah, yeah because i've seen the most terrible blisters <laughs> oh, God, yeah. and injuries yeah. you know that people suffer yeah and mainly because of equipment you know i think i, I really think people don't have the right gear yeah. i don't think you need to train for months and months beforehand no, no. you get fit as you go mm -hmm. i don't think it's, I think it's important to not walk long distances, particularly for the first week or so. Um, and uh, like, you know, maximum 20K perhaps. Keep yourself hydrated. I always take yeah. a tube of Hydrolyte tablets. I do too, yeah. Very nice to pop, in, pop one into a glass of beer at the end of the day. <laughs> well, I can't say I've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a good, that. that's a it's good a, tip. It's a very good mixture. Yeah. The lime Hydrolyte in a cold... Um, Cerveza, Cerveza yeah. is very good. Um, you know, I, little things like that. Um, somebody told me to take a pillow slip. That's been very handy. Yeah. Somebody else told me to take a bath plug. That's also been very handy. Oh, okay. Um, you know, tiny little items. Yeah. You know, very practical. Can make and, a huge and, difference. And very helpful. Well, I haven't heard of the bath, the bathtub one before. But the hydrolyte one sounds like something that I could use, blending two things together, your vitamin yeah. Ds and, and a, a nice beer. And and a, 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 <laughs> it sounds terrific. So what's next? You, you, you had made mention, Mark, uh, in one of your pieces that you've got one Camino, that you're only going to do one. And I, so I know that you've got one coming, uh, you've got one coming up, but I was shocked to read that you thought you only got one left in you. Well, it's interesting. I think I probably went a bit early on that. <laughs> I was sitting in a, a beautiful cafe in um, Asturias last year, restaurant, having some fish and, you know, wine and beautiful food for, you know, 10 euro um, at the end of a long section or stage with a guy I was walking with and two women walked up and they were Australians and we got chatting and Robin, um, who's got a house at Aries, you know, I go down the west coast a bit, so we had a bit in common. She said to me, I can't imagine a year without walking mm. on the Camino now. And she has done a stage, either a whole Camino or a stage, a big stage. Mm -hmm. 
every year for the past 12 years, I think. Okay. And it really resonated with me. And I also, I think she also, she might have also said, um, you don't know how much longer you can keep doing this mm. for. Mm. And so I decided when I came back after what I thought was going to be my last Camino, mm-hmm. the Primitivo, that I would do another one. And um, so I'm leaving next month for the Portuguese, mm-hmm. which is from, you can go from Lisbon, but mm-hmm. we're going from Porto. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend who came on the Primitivo is coming and a guy who I met on the Francis is coming, who's a, who's a good friend mm-hmm. these days. Yeah, so we're doing that, and that's about 300k from Porto to okay. Santiago. Yeah, so that, through the Douro Valley in Portugal. Oh, that's right. And it'll be the first time that you've set off with other, with with friends. Ah, uh, no, last year I, okay. I, I on yeah. the um, yeah. Primitivo. Yeah, I actually, to be honest, thought I was a little concerned about doing the Primitivo alone. Yeah, I've, I found doing the Nort alone. Yeah quite challenging at right. times yeah. because it's very remote and you know you're in the middle of forest and you know um, it, it was it was difficult yeah. uh, being alone yeah. and I thought even though I met people but it, you yeah. know and it's great to be able to share the experiences yeah. as well yeah so I invited a friend to come last year and we had a great time together fantastic and he's coming again this year and, and another okay. friend from the Francis is okay. also coming so yeah. it's three of us well, that's yeah, it. Which will be a lot of fun, I think. That sounds like a a, a real trip to savour, and hopefully um, we might even catch up on the on that return. Have you got? Yeah. Is there any particular? Now, uh, I'll be writing again. You, you'll be writing again. Is there any particular artwork or any other source of inspiration that you have? Well, Was it, is been... there an essay or or some piece of writing you've got? Now, Mark's getting his phone out for me. I've got a photo, um, and um, I've been looking at a picture um, which hangs in the gallery in Porto. Right. And it's a self-portrait. Oh, okay. um, By a Portuguese artist called Aurelia de Souza. And it's a beautiful self-portrait that she painted in 1900. Right. And... I'm interested in that painting, and I'm also very interested in uh, a Brett Whiteley self-portrait. Okay. That won the Archibald Prize in 1978. Ah. And this, in terms of works of art, it'll probably, I'll, you know, the D'Souza painting we'll see in Porto. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theme of a self-portrait, I think, you know, for me, kind of underlines the self-examination aspect of being, of walking and being a pilgrim on the Camino. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that that's probably what I'll be writing about. Yeah. You know, who am I to judge other people, really? Mm. And that's an idea that I've been interested in, you know, since I've been a judge. Yeah. And I think that's that sort of thinking will probably inform this journey and the idea of, you know, self-examination and, you know, self-portraits, I think, are works that I've always been very interested in. Yeah, yeah, So I would would imagine it'll be the Aurelia D'Souza self-portrait that'll be the, 
and that's a beautiful painting. Yeah. Um, she was an interesting Portuguese artist who died died young, and she lived in Porto. And so I'll do some research about her yeah. in Porto, and yeah. um, that's what I'll be writing about. Oh, terrific! That's so. That's Aurelio de Souza. That's her self-portrait, um, and. Um, well, we, we we look forward to hearing or seeing some of that. Maybe in some of the literary magazines, Mianjin would probably yeah. be the most likely destination, which um, um, has got a, a great deal of writing by new Australian writers and sort of well-established writers as well. But Mark Dean, it has been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks, Luke. Uh, my name's Luke Mills, and I've been, been talking to County Court Judge Mark Dean about his caminos and his inspirations and his his reflections, his memoirs, and all the things that have um, really provided a great deal of um, of respite for his uh, work uh, in the judicial system. So thank you very much for joining me, Mark. That's a pleasure, Luke. Thanks very much. Okay.